next door brother Three weekend rows of town By turning the whole place upside down Many awake will cause such a fuss It finally wakes the rest of us One man awakes with dawn in his eyes Surely then it multiplies Well, I feel like I haven't preached in weeks. It's been two weeks. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really excited about, about this coming year. Has anyone else got a bit of a sense of anticipation and excitement and expectation in their hearts? Like I, I just have uh, just a real sense that, that uh, God is, is, is doing something. I mean, he's always doing something, eh? Like we just sort of live unaware sometimes that he, that he is doing, doing something. Um, but, but who knows that God is building us into something? Like as individuals and, and corporately as, as a church, as a local um, church here in, in the Hutt Valley, God is building us into something. And in 1 Corinthians 3, it says this, for, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. You are God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But listen to this. But each one should build with care. Each one should build with care. So, so there's, there's something about the individual building uh, that we go through uh, together, but also the fact that God is building each of us individually into something corporately. And it says, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is, does anyone know what the foundation is? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation on which we build. So, so I want to ask that question this morning. What, what is God building and, and how is he building it? Because I think it's kind of important if we are expecting to become something that we should kind of know what it is that we are becoming. And then we should probably think about um, how, how is God actually doing this? Um, is it hot in here? Yes. Do we have the, can we turn the um, aircon on? Thank you. Some are hot and some are cold. We won't please everyone, but we'll give it a go. All right, so what is God building? God, God is building a, a home, a place where he can dwell. He, he's building a family, and God is building his church. And, and, and there's this verse that says that, that God will build his church, that Jesus will build his church, and, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Has anyone heard, heard that, that verse? That the gates of hell will not withstand it. Now, I want you to listen to this for a second, because, because this is an offensive position not a defensive position. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I've read that, or maybe you've understood that to be like, that like the church will hang on, you know, like we'll just manage to hang on, like hell is going to come against us, and we'll, like, we'll hold on for grim death and hope that when Jesus comes back, he'll rescue us out of this hellhole. But no, no this is an offensive position, that, that the, God, Jesus will build his church, and the gates of hell will not be able to withstand his church. Come on, this is an offensive position, not defensive. That, 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 that the church is, we are, we are the called out ones. Like the, the church, the ecclesia literally means called out ones. The, the called out ones who are called to disrupt the systems of the world with self-sacrificing love. This is the greatest weapon against the gates of hell, self-sacrificing love. See, this is a picture of the church storming the gates of hell and the gates of hell will not withstand it. 
He is building us into something powerful, something victorious. He is building overcomers. He is building us into the faithful, reconciling presence of Jesus in our communities. And he is building disciples, new creations, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, what, what is a disciple? Uh, I thought it was interesting. I was, I was listening this week to a, a guy called Dallas Willard, um, and, and he, he was talking about um, uh, an old discipleship program. I don't know if it, it's still around. I think um, Colin and Mary Ann probably, uh, I think you mentioned it once, Navigators. Anyone heard of Navigators? Uh, he was talking about Navigators, and he was saying it's, it was a great program for helping to disciple people. But one of the things that he said later on in their uh, uh, years actually uh, kind of repented about was that they made two distinctions. They said there are, there are Christians who have made a decision and are you know, going to heaven one day, um, and they sort of carry on with their life. And then there are disciples. And if you want to be a disciple, then engage with this program. That was their kind of uh, language or understanding. And they actually repented of that later and said, do you know what? There is no such thing as just a Christian. We are either a disciple or you're not. We are all disciples. If we're a Jesus follower, then we're a Jesus follower. We're not a Jesus follower and then some Christians who don't really follow Jesus, but will hopefully get there one day. You know what I mean? Like, so they actually went back on that and said, look, we are all disciples. So what is a disciple? A disciple is someone who has found the Jesus life within his kingdom and have made this Jesus life their primary pursuit. They have made Jesus king. A disciple is someone who, is no longer, who no longer separates the secular from the sacred. There is no God space or God time. All time and space is God's. Work is kingdom. School is kingdom. Church is kingdom. Family is kingdom. Even food is kingdom for a disciple. So what does a disciple look like? A disciple is someone that is, a, is on a journey to becoming responsible for themselves. It is someone that is becoming powerful in their relationships, and it is someone who is supernaturally empowered. Dallas Willard said that you, you make disciples by getting people ravished by the kingdom of God, and we do that by getting them to focus solely on Jesus. So my goal this morning and my goal this year is to get us focused solely on Jesus. So how, how does he build us? How does he build us into this victorious, overcoming church that the gates of hell cannot stand? Has anyone heard the verse, um, uh, line upon line, precept upon precept? Has anyone, anyone heard that? If you're a King James Version reader, you probably um, would have heard that. Line upon line, uh, precept upon precept. So this morning I was um, uh, just preparing and I was sort of saying, God, how do you build People, how do you build your church? And, and this verse popped into my head, line upon line, precept upon precept. I'm like, all oh, right, I remember that verse. I've heard lots of sermons about, about that. Um, so I went and read it, Isaiah 28. Anyone read Isaiah 28 lately? No? Okay, I read it this morning. Uh, this is where this verse comes from. Now, I've heard it many times, quoted, you know, that God, you know, we, we study the Bible line upon line, precept upon precept, and, and this is how that we grow, and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I think God was maybe testing me a little bit to challenge me about the fact that what we maybe always assume is true may not be true. Because when I read Isaiah 28, I realized that actually line upon line, precept upon precept is not how God builds us. 
In fact, it is used in a negative light. Interesting. Let me read it for you. Isaiah 28. Who is it he is trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? For it is, and I'm reading from the NIV, and it puts it like this. For it is do this, do that. A rule for this, a rule for that. A little here, a little there. Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord will, to them will become, do this, do that. A rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. So that as they go, they will fall backward and they will be injured and snared and captured. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be injured, snared or captured. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death, with the realm of the dead we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for our sure foundation. Is anyone remembering who our sure foundation is, and the one who relies on it will never be stricken or panic. Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. say. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? For when he has leveled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot, and spelt in its field? His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. Listen, God isn't building a powerful, kingdom-advancing, hell-trembling, heaven-bringing, life-changing church with rules for this and rules for that and here a little and there a little. No, no He is actually wanting to plow our hearts and sow. It's not just a little bit here and a little bit there. No, he is actually wanting to plow our hearts, to turn over the soil of our hearts and sow the right things in the right places. See, this is truly a picture of repentance. Repentance is renewing the mind. It's the process of of unlearning and, and new learning. But, but what happens often in church life is that we actually build precept on precept, line on line. We, we, we turn up maybe, maybe not every, every week. We turn up maybe once a month and we get a little bit here and a little bit there. And we have rules for this and we have rules for that. And what happens is that we are learning new things, a little bit here and a little bit there. And we are often learning them on faulty foundations. But God actually wants to uproot the soil of our heart and sow things in the right places, the right things in the right places. And and it's not necessarily our fault. It's just the way the things are kind of set up. You know, on Sundays, it's just here a little, there a little, really. I'm I'm amazed, actually, how often, um, you know, like I'll preach something and even by Wednesday, I've forgotten what I preached. You know, like, what hope is there for you guys? Eh? <laughs> but it has to be more than just that. Like, like I hope that, that Sundays would inspire you to go deeper. 
uh, that, that potentially what I preach on Sunday might actually stir your heart a little bit. Maybe it will uproot some things in your heart. Maybe it will plow your heart so that things can be sown, sown in a little bit deeper. So, so God is saying that he wants to root up, and, uh, root up the soil of our heart and sow. And, and, and I, I think we should understand that if what is sown is the right thing in the right place, it will produce a harvest. So he's saying, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. Put the good news, this good news into action. See if it produces the right fruit. Listen, if, if it's not making you more loving, it's not the gospel. If it's not producing more joy, it's not the gospel. If it's not uh, producing more patience in you, it's not the gospel. If you aren't seeing a harvest of peace, it's not the gospel. Because these things will produce fruit in your life. So I I also believe this, that that heart-plowing, life-changing, transforming truth can only be experienced in genuine depth of relationship. It's actually in the depth of community that we actually uh, have our hearts plowed. It's not just through hearing something on a Sunday. It's actually when we go away and wrestle with that with someone. When we, when we actually go away and, and churn that over with someone. And I think potentially, potentially part of the deal is this. And, and this is uh, an opportunity for me as, as a pastor uh, to be honest with you, um, but I, I've been thinking about this uh, over the holidays, thinking about what, what is preached on a Sunday in most churches, if I'm being 100% honest, is probably things that will grow the church, rather than things that will build people. And so that's just my little time to be honest. Uh, because pastors, we, we kind of get caught up in this role of building, you know, building the church. Um, and so it can be very easy to think along the lines, well, what's going what's to build the church? What's going to grow the church? Rather than actually let's get down to the deep stuff that's actually going to build people. What's actually going to plow the hearts of the people so that God can sow something that's going to produce a harvest? Shane Willard, um, uh, I was listening to him last year. We went over to Kapiti and, and uh, heard him speak. He's a, a brilliant teacher. But he said this. He said that, that we have to understand that preaching isn't a declaration. I, I'm not standing up here and saying, here's all the things that you need to believe are true. Actually, he said, we need to think of preaching as a discussion. See, I, I don't preach so that you all go away and agree with me. I preach so that you will all go away and wrestle with it. Come on, so that it might plow your heart. So that you actually go away and go, you know, you might drive home with your wife or your husband and, and say, well, what did you think of that? That really kind of confronted me. Or that, you know, like it actually stirred something in me and, and it's actually challenging me. And, and so that we go away with this need and, and this want to discuss and to plow and to dig a little bit deeper. I think one of the unfortunate things about society today is that we actually live in echo chambers. And social media is perpetuating echo chambers in our life where, I don't know if you know this, but whatever you like on Facebook, Facebook will continue to feed you with. 
You, you generally only see things on your feed that you agree with. And, and so what happens is we create echo chambers where, where we're never challenged to think differently. Where we just see things that we always agree with. And I, I think it's the same in church life. Like if you only go to a church because you always agree with the preacher, you will never learn. You will never grow. You are just going there because it's comfortable and you just want to agree with everything and church becomes an echo chamber. But what if, what if I stirred you a little bit this year? What if I was intentional this year about actually preaching with a plow and getting you to think a little bit deeper about some things and stir some things up? And maybe you might think that's a little bit uncomfortable and I wouldn't feel safe with that. And I want to encourage you with this thought that if your foundation is Christ, you will be okay. You will be okay. So uh, one of the things that I noticed um, this year is that uh, uh, every, every pastor and preacher was preaching on 2020. Hey, because it's, you know, 2020 and what, what a great... What a great sermon to be able to preach, you know, 2020, you know, 2020 vision and, you know, all of, all of that stuff. And so I was determined I am not going to speak on 2020 vision this morning. But I heard something this week that kind of was really interesting. So I'll just share a little bit. I won't go into the whole thing. Anyway, so in Hebrew, 20 symbolizes redemption. So it's the Hebrew letter kaf which um, represents the, the number 20, and, and it means this, it's, it's, the, it's the, an open-handed palm, an open-handed palm. It signifies giving freely with the palm up or covering sin with the palm down. It's an open, or a slap. <laughs> Thanks, Colin. <laughs> it's the open-handed palm, and, and 2020 is the double open-handed palm. It's... It's the year of redemption. It's the, it's the double portion, the open-handedness of God in double portion. So I was thinking about that, and I thought, well, that's a really cool thought. And I'm sure all, all the prophetic people are going, oh, that's awesome, you know. Ah. <laughs> um, but here's, here's my concern with that, is that we, if we think of 2020 as the double open-handed it's the double portion of God and God's giving freely. Uh, does that mean that he wasn't last year? Or, or the year before or the year before that? You know, like, no, 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 no. I, I think it should remind us that he has always been the double portion, open-handed God giving freely to his people. He, he, he has always been that person. You see, the, the kingdom always starts with fullness. It always starts with fullness. The kingdom is not, uh, is not a measured kingdom. It's a, it's, it's a kingdom of fullness. And, and so what happens is as we journey, Jesus teaches us how to use the fullness that he gives freely. Graham Cook, he, say, he says this, you, you are never less than full. You are never less than full. God is a God of fullness, not measure. So stop asking God to give you what's already yours. He said we need a lens change, a new perspective to see what God has already done, what he has already given, and what he has already revealed through Jesus. And so we need a lens change. 
We need to open our eyes to what God has already done, that He is the God of fullness. It's a change of mind. A new, new year requires new repentance. A few years ago, I, I preached on that, that uh, I, I don't do New Year's resolutions. I, I do New Year's repentance. It's a new year. It's time to change my mind. What, what is it about last year that, that, that my, the things that I was thinking that caused chaos in my life? What, what are the things last year that I was thinking that, that caused trouble or that led me uh, on the wrong path? What are the things that I actually need to change my mind about this year? What is a new year's repentance for me this year? See, it's a new way of seeing, and, and that's, that's why we start with a fast each year. We, we start our, our year with a 21-day uh, time of fasting and praying. And, and uh, you know, fasting may not always change the way that you look. You know, it kind of is a diet. It may change the way you look a little bit. But the point of a fast is actually to change the way you see. It's actually to give you a new perspective, to actually see things differently. And next week I'll be talking specifically about um, our fast as we kick that off um, officially on, on the 26th. Um, but you're, you're welcome to sort of start at any time. But next week we'll have all the info and, and I'll be speaking into that specifically. But I, I think the important thing is, is that when we come to these things, it's not what Jesus is talking you out of, but what he is talking you into that's important. See, Jesus wants to talk you into a new life. He's not trying to talk you out of your old life. Come on, our, our old life is dead. We, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. He's trying to talk us into our new life, our new creation. See, all of, it, all of heaven is attracted to Jesus in you. What is, what is true of Jesus is now true of you. The double portion, open-handed generosity of God is attracted to Christ in you. It's nothing you did to earn it. You didn't deserve it. You can't turn it on. You can't turn it off. It has nothing to do with you, but because of the covenant promise between the Father and Christ in you. This double portion, open-handed goodness of God. <laughs> come on. It's attracted to Christ in you. It is attracted to Christ in you. We kind of need to get that. The, the goodness of God is attracted to Christ in you. you. You can't turn it off. You can't turn it on. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. And we just need to wake up to the fact that it's always been present. It's always been available. A lens change, a new perspective is what we need. So who knows that um, life can be out of control? Who, who had a, a year last year maybe where things were just, man, like boom, 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 you know, like I, I don't know what's going on, like it's chaos and, and uh, I can't control any of this. Who knows that that's like, that's uncomfortable. It, it's, it doesn't feel safe. Um, you know, because, uh, human nature is we want to control. We want to control the narrative. We want to control the circumstances. We want to control the situations. We want to control it all because it feels safe. But I, I want to encourage you with one thought this morning, that, that life is actually out of control. You, you can't control life. You, you can't control what's going to happen tomorrow. But there is one thing that you are in control of in life, one thing. 
And, you know, you might say, oh, there's other things. That's cool. I believe there's one thing. One thing that you are in control of. How much of the goodness of God will be in your tomorrow? You cannot control the circumstances of tomorrow, but you are in control of how much of God is in that circumstance. How much of the open-handed, double-portion goodness and abundance of God's resurrecting, restoring, redemptive life I receive into my life is actually up to me. It's not up to the person that offended me. They aren't in control of me. I'm responsible for me. I'm responsible for how much of Jesus' life I have in my life. God is not withholding from you. You need to beat that lie out. God is not withholding from you. That is the original lie in the garden. It is the original lie. God is not withholding from you. I may not be able to control my circumstances tomorrow, but I can control how much of his peace, how much of his joy, how much of his love, how much of his patience is in my tomorrow that I can control. Why do we control? Why do we want to control? It's, it's safe. Well, it's false safety. It makes us feel safe maybe for a moment. And who knows that here a little, there a little. Rules for this, rules for that. That kind of make us feel safe. I'll just take a little bit of that, a little bit of this. But who knows that when God wants to plow our hearts, it's a little bit unsafe. It's a little bit uncomfortable. I don't really know if I like that. Like I said a few weeks ago, you know, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. I think control is. The need to control. I love this quote from uh, C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He, he's safe, asks Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. <laughs> Come on, who knows that following Jesus isn't safe? God's not safe, but he's good. He's good. And his goodness abounds towards you. His goodness and his mercy will follow you all the days of your life that you can be certain of. All right, I just want to finish with um, the parable of the sower, Mark 4. And uh, then we're going to share around communion. Mark 4 says this, Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and he sat out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore of the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came up and ate it. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. 
But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. When Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And when he was done, the 12 and others around him asked, asked him about the parables. And he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seen, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Yeah, that's just, that's crazy. Think about that for a while. Jesus spoke in parables so that they wouldn't get it. All right, verse 13. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? L listen, this parable is the key to every parable. You, you need to get this parable. Jesus is saying, if you don't get this, you ain't going to get anything else. How will you then understand any parable? Listen, verse 14. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others like seed sown in ro on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others like seed sown among thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others like seed sown on good soil hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Listen, our, our hearts are the soil. The condition of our hearts is the soil in this parable. And, and we, we need every now and then, I don't, like, I don't know if you've ever grown up on a farm, some people may have, but every year or every few years, the, the ground has to be plowed. The ground has to be plowed. It has to be turned over. There needs to be fresh life come into it. There has to be, it has to get aerated. It, it, it needs to be plowed. And, and the same is in our lives. Every now and then, our hearts need to be plowed. And that's uncomfortable. It's not enjoyable. It's not safe. It's out of our control. But it has to happen. Our hearts get plowed and something new and something fresh can be sown into our hearts. The other thing about soil is that uh, um, uh, a tradition in uh, Hebrew times is that they would actually leave the soil every seven years. Every, every seven years they would leave it for the whole year so that it could rest. And Jesus is, he's picking, I mean, the, the, the Jewish people would have totally understood all of this stuff when he's talking about this parable. And I, I think for us, um, from verse 18, that, that's us in the West, I believe. Saw others like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of life. Come on, we are an anxious 
anxious society, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth. We are consumed by consumerism. The deceitfulness of wealth, if I can just get more, I'll be happy. If I could just get the new thing, I'd be happy. And the desires for other things come in and they choke the life out of us. They choke the word, making it unfruitful. And this is why we have fast. To stop for a moment. To stop consuming for a moment. To reset. Say, Jesus, it's about you. Oh, and you might say, no, I'm too busy. I'm too this. I'm too that. I'm too anxious. I'm blah, 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 blah. This is exactly the reason why we do it. So we need to slow down. We need to have some silence. We need to have simplicity. And we need a Sabbath. Right, we're going to, um, is that video okay? Cool. I just want to show you a short video just on this whole idea of Sabbath and taking rest. Um, and then we're going to share around communion together. Uh, does it have sound? You'll rest. Yes. Can we start that now again? Now keep all that in mind as we turn... The number seven is a big deal in the Bible. Yeah, in biblical Hebrew, the word seven is connected to the idea of fullness or completeness. And that's something we all long for, but don't often experience. Instead, we find ourselves working endlessly, fighting back chaos with no real rest. Yes. Now keep all that in mind as we turn to Genesis 1 in the Bible. It begins with darkness and disorder, but then God speaks to bring about light and order so that life can flourish. And this happens over the course of six days. Each day is marked with the phrase, there was evening and there was morning. But on the seventh day, something special happens. God stops and rests. Right. Creation is brought to its completion on the seventh day. And that phrase, there was evening and there was morning, it doesn't appear on day seven. It's like a day with no end. On the seventh day, God's presence fills his creation. The land provides for all of God's creatures, including humans, who are appointed to rule the world with God forever. Kings and queens of the seventh day rest. I can get into that. But the humans are deceived by a dark power, and they forfeit that rest. They're exiled into the wilderness, where they have to work as slaves to the land. Until they die and return to the dust from which they came. But God wants to restore humanity back to that seventh day rest. So he chooses to give the family of Israel that experience of ultimate rest so they can share it with others. But how? They're in Egypt, slaves to an oppressive empire who's grinding them into the dust. So God confronts Egypt and he liberates the Israelites, taking them through the darkness and chaos on the way to the promised land. Now while they're on their way, they find themselves in the wilderness. It's easy to get lost, life is a struggle, 
they're not in the land of rest yet. But while they're on the way, God invites them in the wilderness to start living as if they're in the promised land. But how do you practice the future rest in the wilderness? Well, God tells them that every seventh day they are to stop their work, or in Hebrew, to Shabbat, so that they can rest and enjoy God's good world. So take a whole day to live as if the ultimate rest has already come. Yeah, this is the Sabbath, celebrated every week on the seventh day. But there's more. The Sabbath is just one of seven festivals that Israel practiced every year, each one anticipating that seventh day rest. That is a lot of sevens. And there's even more. Every seven years, the Israelites were to liberate slaves, forgive debts, and let the land rest for a whole year. And then, every seven times seven years was the ultimate seventh day rest, called the year of Jubilee. If anyone had lost their land or gone into debt, all was forgiven, everything restored. Wow, so the Sabbath, these feasts, the year of Jubilee, it's all pointing towards the hope of future rest. Right. Now, when the Israelites went into the land, they forgot their God, and so they forfeited their chance for rest in the Promised Land. They're exiled and enslaved again by an oppressive nation, led back into a world of chaos and disorder. But Israel's prophets said that their exile would end one day, and that the ultimate jubilee of freedom and rest would come, but generations go by, and they're still waiting. It's at this dark point in the story that Jesus appears, and he launches his public mission on a Sabbath day. Yeah, he read aloud from the scroll of Isaiah, saying that it was time for all captives and slaves to be released because this was the year of the Lord's favor. What did he mean, this is the year of the Lord's favor? He was talking about the ultimate jubilee. Also, Jesus is claiming that seventh day rest would come through him. Right, he said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, and he confronted disorder and darkness in all of its forms, liberating people from sickness, sin, even from death itself. Yet, Jesus was killed, so even his work was undone. Well, it seemed that way. But notice, Jesus timed his death to take place at the end of the week. His body rested in a tomb during the Sabbath, and on the eighth day, he rose from the dead. Oh wait, the eighth day? You mean the first day of a new week? Exactly. Jesus' resurrection was like the first day of a new creation, where God's light and life broke into the darkness. So because of the resurrection, we have hope in God's promise of future rest. But we're not there yet. It's like we're still in the wilderness, where we experience struggle and pain. But as we journey towards that ultimate seventh day, Jesus invites us to experience a taste of real rest now, by following him, or in his words, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's cool, eh? Great. We can um, share our communion now. That'd be great. And uh, just as we take communion this morning, I'm going to just want to. I just felt to read Ephesians three um, over you, and um, maybe the worship team can come and. Uh, so what's going to happen now is I'll read this through. You can take communion when you feel um, feel right, and then I'll pray. Uh, but just as we sing the last song, 
if you want to come forward and um, just receive some, some prayer, um, be anointed, uh, just, just come to the front and uh, I'll just pray for you. Ephesians 3. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him and through faith in Him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So Father, we just thank you that you are a God of fullness. You are not a God of measure. You are not a father who is withholding from his children. But God, you are able to give all of yourself to each of his children. You don't withhold from anyone. You don't give more to one and hold back from another. You give all of yourself to all of your children. So we thank you for this. I, I pray this morning that that revelation, that the, that the revelation of Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory, would become settled in our hearts. That we would live from that place, that we wouldn't live towards love, but we would live from love. That we wouldn't live a life of measure, but we would live a life of fullness. That we would know and experience the depth and the width, and the height of your love for us. We thank you that all of this is true that all of this is made freely available because of you, Jesus, and what you did on the cross. We thank you that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. You've set us free from the powers of the enemy, set us free from the bondage of sin, and you've overcome death on our behalf. 
We thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You are making new wine. 